doing our best, that's right, but it may not be good enough, so that's, that's the issue. So, um, so I'd now like to um, introduce our panel uh, for tonight's discussion. So joining Elizabeth are Dr... As I speak your name, can you wave your, your hand up so you know who's... the audience know who you are? So um, Dr Lynette Riley, and next to her... her her sister, Auntie Diane Riley McNabo. Um, next to Elizabeth, Shannon Dodson, and Michael Bell. Uh, doc uh, Dr. Riley is a Wiradjuri and Gamilaroi woman and senior lecturer at the University of Sydney. She was one of the founding members of the New South Wales Department of uh, DAT Aboriginal Education Unit, which created the first Aboriginal education policy in 1982, same time as those games going on, and was instrumental in establishing Aboriginal presence in universities. Lynette has a long history working for reconciliation at the local level as chair of the Dubbo Reconciliation Group and state level as state chair for New South Wales Reconciliation. Auntie Diane Riley McNabo is also a Wiradjuri Gamilaroi elder, a former classroom teacher. She's been instrumental in the teaching of Wiradjuri language in schools across northwestern New South Wales. And uh, many of you all know that this is uh, flourishing. It seems to be a flourishing program that you've got going there. Shannon Dodson is the Communications Manager for the Provost Chancellor Office at the University of Technology, Sydney, and an Indigenous Affairs Officer for Media Diversity Australia. She's also an Ambassador for Are You OK? and a board member of ANTAR, Australians are, uh, of ANTAR. I have to also just let you know that she's actually in our collection. Um, so an oral history uh, is in the collection. And Michael has joined us tonight from the War Memorial. Michael Bell um, has joined us from the War Memorial, where he is Indigenous Liaison Officer and um, uh, interacts quite strongly with our own staff here at the library and among the Commonwealth cultural institutions, so that issues of kind of common importance, a, a listening voice, a supportive network can exist for our collective um, mob, I think of them, here in our cultural institutions who do fabulous work. So over to you, speakers, and Elizabeth, I'll leave you to charge through and lead the way. Um, thank you very much uh, for that, that, those kind introductions. Now, I've been um, asked to come along and I'm honoured to get the microphone first in front of these ladies because they're full of knowledge and experience and commitment and dedication to uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues and it's been proven many a time over. You just have to look at their CVs and resumes. So um, I'm, I'm honoured to uh, help the uh, National Library of Australia out tonight and get that talk going. Thank you first of all Dr Elizabeth uh, Burrows for your informative talk. It goes quite a long way back and it's uh, very informative. But what I wanted to talk about tonight, to get the ball rolling, ladies, um, in relation to, because it's NADOC and aren't, you're on the National NADOC Committee, aren't right, aren't, aren't Lynn? Mm -hmm. um, you're on the National NADOC Committee. How do you think picking the theme and is driving the, the um, interest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues across the nation? And also, can you just take us through how the committee actually picks the theme to, to guide us in relation to 
NAIDOC? Okay. I, I think firstly what we try to do is make sure that the theme resonates with what's happening in the wider community at the time and particularly to pick up what are the themes and interests that are really important to us as Aboriginal people. So when we were looking at um, the theme this year, we were looking at the Uluru Statement and what was coming out of that in relation to the non-recognition of Aboriginal people as having a voice nationally and that uh, we were being dismissed in our concerns at a federal level. And for us, that can no longer be allowed to happen. And I do appreciate that a lot of people thought that the NAIDOC committee was just a reflection and should be a voice of the federal government. And we're here to say, no, we're not. <laughs> we're here at, to be the voice of Aboriginal people across Australia. And so the theme this year had to, by necessity, have to be political because we're living in a political climate where they're trying to, again, dismiss and demean who we are as people. And therefore, voice, treaty, truth is really important that we always remember those key elements and make sure we really think about what it means to us in moving forward as a nation in this country. Mm. And I think well, I'm on the committee with Aunt as well, but I think also we really thought the themes were not just in relation to the Uluru Statement, but also what they mean more generally. So obviously um, voice is a really big thing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Um, having our voices heard and um, being represented, um, not only sort of on a federal uh, parliament level, but on all levels, um, in organisations, uh, in everyday life, in the media. So it, we really wanted the theme to also kind of hit some points around generally um, where the conversation is at. And obviously treaty is a, um, is a really big issue that's been on the agenda for... 30 odd years. For the hundreds of years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Alan, BC. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so, and I think also the truth um, stuff, obviously, I think that uh, there is a lot of truth telling that needs to be done. And I don't think that's actually about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people telling our truth because we've been telling our truth for a long time. It's actually about um, the rest of Australia to come to grips with the truth of the history of this country and to start actually talking about what that all means for us today. Thank you. Thank you. Given, given that response, do you think that NAIDOC and the successful infiltration into mainstream society has become our most successful political campaign ever. <laughs> and given, acknowledging that it goes back to the pen of William Cooper and his representations on behalf of us celebrating our culture and also having equal representation, can you see that NAIDOC, and do you, would you agree that NAIDOC is a political campaign that has been the most successful? Well, or do you, do you think there are other campaigns that have done a, a better job? I think what's interesting about NAIDOC, though, is a lot of people don't know that NAIDOC actually started as a protest to Australia Day. So people don't really... They don't know that history, that actually it started as a protest. 
and then the thought was, let's turn it into more of a celebration. It then turned into a week-long celebration, and you know, for Blackfellas, we'd like it to be a year-long, all-the-time all celebration. But um, I think that it, I think it's been a really successful campaign in terms of being able to get into the psyche of the Australian public. Mm. I mean. Yeah, I mean, in terms of a campaign, I think it's been pretty successful. What do you think? Yeah. I, I think that one of the key reasons why it's successful is that it's accepted and adopted throughout a number of different organisations. So all schools celebrate NADOC. And if we're going to educate people, that's where we have to start. Uh, and it's just so widely accepted that um, I know Diane has been heavily involved in the school sector in running NADOC functions. But for me, it's one of those key organised uh, celebrations that's accepted as an educational program as well. And I think that that's where we really have to hit it. Mm. I think when I do NADOC, I do NADOC from uh, July and sometimes in June all the way to <laughs> December, <laughs> going and supporting all the schools and the communities because they all want the same people to come in and um, talk, but they've got to try to dilly them out a little bit <laughs> so that they all get a little part of those people that have got the knowledge, those knowledge holders that can come in with the dance and the song um, and talk about the weaving and the ochre, what ochre means when you put ochre on your body and um, all those cultural things that are important because you can't do language without culture. Um, it's, it educates our children, so someone that's working in the um, schools and has been um, teaching at, on NADOCs for many years, so I've been supporting that for... I've been doing stuff in schools for over 30 years, um, teaching my language and culture, and um, for both Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal children to learn together, that's really important. Um, our culture is worth surviving, if you like, and it's worth them um, having that chance to learn about our language and our culture. It's more relevant because it's on the country where they're living, makes more sense, and it's giving something back. It's giving something back to the community, but it's making these people stronger so that they can have a more informed choice down the track and understand what's happened in the past to how we can improve the future. So I guess what Diane's saying is that one of the things we'll, you can see through NADOC is that it's, whilst it can be seen as a political theme at the federal level, it, the impact on the local level is very much a cultural expression. And so I think that that's really important to understand yeah. as well. Yeah, and I think also it's like with NADOC, I mean, you know, I joke about it being, you know, all year, but in reality, you know, we shouldn't just sort of silo Indigenous stuff to one week and then not kind of have that celebration at any other time. So, um, you know, the, NADOC is obviously a really good sort of um, time where people can focus on uh, indigenous perspectives and histories and cultures, but that's something that needs to be woven throughout the entire year, throughout curriculum, throughout um, representation, the media. Um, it's not kind of just one week a year where Indigenous people are allowed to speak and have a voice. You know, it sort of has to be something that is um, 
peppered throughout the, the entire year. So, yeah, I think that it's also interesting thinking about how we don't just move towards having this one week <laughs> and that actually it's about integrating it into um, what Australia actually means as a country. It's breaking down barriers too. It's breaking down barriers and promoting understanding between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. Um, and I think it, it's producing a more caring generation um, and an understanding of what country and that means to us and how we have to look after country. Um, and if we can do that together, we're doing a lot of healing in mm. that country. Um, I have a little school just called um, Ballymore, just outside of Dubbo, and I taught the students a, a little song and they loved that song and they loved the dance that went with it. And they'd get up on the veranda and they'd sing me all the way out while I was walking out of the school, all the way to my car. As I got in my car, they're singing me up the road, you know. And that's Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal students. And they're real proud that they've learned an Aboriginal language and that they can sing to me and sing me all the way out of the school. And for me as an Aboriginal person, like, that's just fantastic to see that, that the, the students and the teachers are all singing in our language, um, something that wasn't allowed to be taught or spoken. So when I was a child, I wasn't allowed to speak my language. My uncle, my father weren't allowed to speak their language. Um, my grandmother and her, her um, the older people would speak in whispers behind the shed. My father knew words in isolation. My uncle could speak fluent uh, Radrian Nyampa language. Um, he was a six-year-old boy. He was very clever and he could speak three different languages, so English, Radrian Nyampa language. And um, the aunties and the grandmothers were so proud of him. They thought, wow, this boy is so clever. I'm talking about a six-year-old boy now. We have to send him to school. We can't keep him at home because he's too clever. We want him to learn more. And they sent him to school and he was at school and he got comfortable. He really liked the teachers and he, he enjoyed being there with the teachers and making friends and learning. And he dropped, it, dropped into speaking his language. That little boy got taken away for two years for speaking his language at school. So it's really good now that our students can speak their language without being taken away um, from their parents for two years because they were clever. Okay, so that sharing and sh letting our children be clever should be allowed. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's, that's very, very deep and it leads me into the, um, the next little area that I'd like to uh, get your thoughts on, ladies, is that truth. And truth being one of the pillars of reconciliation and we're looking at the Aboriginal truth and voice. Now, as we said, we've been speaking the truth. I think it was Chief Shannon said we've been speaking the truth all of our lives. It's our truth. But in this modern age of the digital world, and we've seen it up there in your presentation, Dr Elizabeth, um, in relation to the accessibility and the, the amount of information that's now out there on the um, electronic universe and, and all, of the, all of the instas, I'm not up to that. I, I just learning how to use a phone. But, <laughs> but in the old days, and as you, somebody, you know, and I'm going to be a little bit uh, terrible here, but the old forms were telegraph, telephone, teleblack. 
<laughs> now, that's how the grapevine, we all know the grapevine. We've got that community grapevine. Now, how was, how was that looking at the voice and coming through language and truth going to work together, in, especially this year because it's the International Year of um, Indigenous Languages? How can we see that improving what we're trying to do through all of these programs and also our national focus in media and also in education? So Aboriginal groups right across the world are fighting really hard to have their languages and that not lost um, and to have the right to speak their language and practice their culture. We have um, nations from all around the world looking at what's happening in New South Wales with the um, Aboriginal language legislation um, and, and what's going to happen down the track with that. Um, so internationally, um, we are seen as, as um, be, that being important. So I know Canada, Canada Indians are looking at, Canadian Indians are looking at um, New South Wales. Um, I know the other states around Australia are looking at what's happening with New South Wales. Um, I think it'll be a, a great shame and a great loss for any of those Aboriginal nations around the world to lose their language and culture, for us not to be able to share it um, and be, you know, be able to go to another country and experience that, whether it be French or Scottish, Irish, um, Indonesian, Filipino, you know, any of those uh, language groups are Chinese, Japanese, you know, I'd like to go, because I love my language and culture, but I'd like to go and experience other people's language and culture as well. And I'd hate to see any of those to be lost in the world. Um, so it's very important that we celebrate the languages around the world, but su support them in um, being able to have them language record, uh, recorded and not lost. And not have um, interference from... Um, English speakers take away the meaning behind those words that they use. Um, we have a lot of our la Aboriginal languages that have been lost throughout Australia. That's why it's very important now that we try to do something to save those languages. Because for Aboriginal people, without your identity, and language and culture is your identity, without that, you've got a whole generation of lost people that um, don't know where they belong. We've got a lot of suicide in our communities from young people and that, and it, it, that's sad, that's really sad. We've had a couple of um, young fellas that we've lost this year through suicide and that, and um, I hope that we keep fighting so that we can keep them young people with us mm. and become strong people um, throughout our nation that can stand up and speak for our country for everybody. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think for me, when I hear the a theme, voice, treaty, truth, it goes right back mm. to when Australia was claimed as terra nullius, the great mm. lie, the great untruth. And that if we can't acknowledge that and what mm. that has continued to mean to us as Indigenous people and that as a nation we were the only country in the world that decided not to have a treaty with Aboriginal people, with Indigenous nations. And so that's the great lie. So we need to really acknowledge that. And sometimes that's a bit hard for people to 
acknowledge and um, to work out how that has created um, a society of um, genocide and acceptance of that genocide in this country and we need to break it down. Yeah. That's mm. why the theme is so important this yeah. year. Mm. And I, I don't think you can look at Australia as being the lucky country when there's been so many um, deaths and that, mm. and, and that acknowledgement doesn't happen, mm. you know. Um, and when you've got people that say these things happened um, with Aboriginal people, and then Aboriginal people um, being made out to be liars, um, it's very sad. Um, it's like someone who's saying, I've been raped. Oh, no, you haven't. Yes, I have. No, you haven't. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same thing. Mm -hmm. And Aboriginal people need to um, just have their voices listened to. Mm -hmm. It's just about respect, respecting those people so they don't keep carrying that sorry business along and then each generation takes that sorry business on. When Aboriginal people talk about things, and this is to do with language and culture, they no longer talk in the past. Once they start talking about and telling a story, they're telling it as if it's happening right now in front of you, right now. So that's when you'll see people start to weep and go through sorry business when they're telling you stuff because they're no longer talking in the past. If I had to talk about things that happened with my mother or my, my father or my uncle, it's taken me a very long time to be able to talk without crying over the things that happened with them and not jump into that present storytelling, um, the truth. Mm. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you're saying about sort of mm. social media and because I think it's a it's sort of a double-edged sword because I think that social media and the media we have seen sort of um, you know with platforms like Indigenous X on Twitter uh, also having more Indigenous journalists and Indigenous media um, you're being able to see perspectives from Indigenous people that you probably wouldn't have ever seen in the mainstream media or mm. even kind of just out there, you know, and I think social media has helped to sort of spread those perspectives, but obviously at the same time, um, you know, obviously it then allows anyone to have an opinion and so p opinions can turn into fact. Um, and so I think it is this double-edged sword, but I do see, I actually think it's more positive because we are seeing more Indigenous people having a voice and being able to tell their stories and have their perspectives out there. And I think that we're being able to sort of talk more about this truth-telling stuff, which uh, trying to get people to understand that the history of this country and colonisation is not just something in the past, mm. that it has created intergenerational trauma that every Indigenous person experiences, no matter how old or how young you are, because you have been passed on this from generations ago. And you see that with any community that has suffered trauma, you see that with Holocaust survivors. 
So it is an ingrained thing that gets passed down through generations. And I think that a lot of Australians are starting to get their head around what that means. And, you know, not just this whole rhetoric of, why don't they just get over it? Or, you know, everything's much better now. So, you know, just sort it out. So I think there is more of a conversation going on about how actually we do need to be really truthful about the history. We need to be truthful about what's actually still happening today because this is continuing to get passed on through generations. Um, and so I think that's why the theme is really important because it, it kind of covers all of those very important facets of what we really need to do as a country. And I think the treaty stuff is also, I guess, the sort of us coming together um, in this whole process. I think the example for me of that is that uh, you looked at the removal of Aboriginal people from their country starting in 1883 uh, right through to the 19, 1970s where Aboriginal people were moved and placed onto reserves and missions. What we fail to acknowledge is we're not talking about one generation, we're talking about between four to eight generations of people who were confined and controlled. And the only other example we've got of that internationally is when the Jews were placed into concentration camps. And there we're talking about one generation of people. Mm. So when you yeah. say, get over it, you're talking about eight generations. How do you get over it? Mm. You're not talking about what is happening to one generation. And you might say that in some states, like the Northern Territory, it's still going on. Mm. So how can people get over it? Uh, let's be real about the influence that we're talking about. We're not talking about it happening to one generation. We're talking about it ongoing since the arrival of the British here in Australia. Yeah, thank you. It, uh, those who aren't aware of that, it's a, um, uh, the White Australia policy. Have a look at that. But also moving, moving forward into that, and you've touched on a, another topic that I want to talk about in relation to the intervention in the Northern Territory, and we've got a federal government that suspends its own legislation, even the Anti-Discrimination Act, to bring another act to once again care for Aboriginal people mm. and protect Aboriginal people. So we love that word because it's been used so broadly of our protectors. We nearly got protected into extinction. Mm. Now, in relation to the media that was covering that and also take, take that back, I want to go back to you, Doctor. I want to get your study into this because you, you, you poked some memories for me and relate that protest in 1982 in the Commonwealth Games back to the protests there in Brisbane and about the Anti-Apartheid Act and the South African touring teams. I know a lot of our university students and some of the older people that might have been here helping us protest <laughs> and got locked up and it's a, it's a mark of pride on their uh, resume that they got locked up protesting the anti-apartheid. So the, when back, everyone remember when un university used to be free? Mm. <laughs> you would have been in the protest. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I want to do is look at that media coverage in relation to the anti-apartheid protests and also connected to the Aboriginal um, mission to seek recognition of our human rights and also our citizenship rights and bring that forward to looking at social media and how it's going today. Have you looked in or would you be able to give us an appreciation of how that is happening in the media in, or in, does that relate to your study? 
Look, I think one of the benefits of social media is that um, anybody can participate. But as you said, one of the dangers also is that you get lots of different opinions. Um, one thing I was... Um, in terms of human rights and Aboriginal human rights, I, I, was, um, I was looking at the Facebook page for um, the, the, the um, Black Rising Facebook page. One thing I was, I was really surprised about was how much time and, and space they gave to things like um, Palestinians, um, the Rohingyas, um, just be, the willingness to not just look at Aboriginal human rights, but the global human rights of other people who are struggling at the moment as well. Um, and I think that's true when you look back historically through Aboriginal media. Um, they're not just looked at their own human rights and, and the need for um, new legislation or for it to be taken care of, um, but the, the willingness to actually look at other countries. And um, I think all one of the things that strikes me when I when I look at media across the the globe, indigenous media, is the, the similarities. The stories are the same. Um, if you look at indigenous people in Canada, or you talk to people in. New Zealand or you talk to people in Australia, these stories are the same, you know, the, um, the need for decolonisation, um, the way people have been treated. Um, so I think in terms of how we achieve human rights in Australia, we have to look globally as well. Um, I was really interested in what Auntie Diane was saying about um, other, other countries looking at what we're doing in terms of language. Mm. Um, when I was in New Zealand a couple of years ago, it really brought home to me how important the Treaty of Waitangi is, mm. in that um, Maori people and, and you know, their, the protection of their languages, of their culture, is part of their constitution. The government has to make sure that there's, there are funds and time and resources given to ensure that their culture and their people are taken care of. And um, I think that we can learn from that. I think Australia... I was stunned the other day to find out that Australia is, I think, the only first world country that does not have a treaty with its First Nations people. So I think maybe that's the starting place. If we want to ensure that people have human rights and you know, are treated respectfully and we protect languages and culture, we have to start there with, the, with negotiating and talking about a treaty. Okay, thank you for that. We'll, we'll open the door very nicely, thank you very much, to the, um, a couple of topics that we'd know, I'd like to get your views on, ladies. In relation to that is treaty, um, do we need one? <laughs> Should we have one? What does it look like? And but also in relation to treaty, I'm I want to see if a treaty would help us in either constitutional recognition or just fixing the constitution of Australia as it up to stop it from being racist. Uh, you know, there's parts in the legislation that are clearly racist, and they're still there. They're not used anymore, but they still exist in our constitution. But your thoughts on treaty? I'd like to. Um, see where you are with that because I know that it's a different experience for everybody and whether we have you know, 575 treaties <laughs> or one treaty with framework, it's a, it's a 
it's as broad and as wide as our languages and our dialects. Mm. So I'd like to get some some thoughts on treaty and what your your perspective and take on treaty would be. Annie Lynn. Oh. <laughs> I'm just thinking back to um, the way in which initial research was undertaken in this country and by whom. Uh, and that is that until most recently, all the research that was done about Aboriginal people was done by anthropologists. And so that meant that the research was undertaken to prove, firstly, that we didn't exist, uh, secondly, to prove that we were the missing link, and to prove that, that we had no real systems or structures in place. And therefore, that gave impetus or um, foundation to the Australian government not ever having to negotiate with us. That's a huge lie. So what that means is that the government then has not ever had to worry about creating a relationship with us, whether it's at a national level or at a local level. So not that I'm promoting a treaty, because I've seen how treaties have been misused with other Indigenous nations right across the world. I mean, we can count on all of our fingers and toes in this room how many treaties have been broken and how they've been misused to lie. But I'm rather thinking of it as creating some kind of national framework that can be used at a regional and local level, or sorry, at a, at a national, because uh, people still use the term tribe about us. And, and we're not a tribes. We don't have tribes, we have nations. They belong to broad geographical areas. We have clans and we have family groups. That's how we operate. So the term tribe means a loosely grouped form of people with no real structure. That's not us. We have nations, clans and family groups. And that's a set structure. So there actually is a framework in place. We've got it for negotiation. So let's use it. Let's have some real negotiation happening. I think Australia is more of a sort of complex, complicated case study, I guess, for having a treaty because uh, we're not similar. We're very different to New Zealand in the sense of we're made up of hundreds of different nations. We don't have one collective language. And obviously that treaty was negotiated from the get-go and now things have progressed so much. We're in a very different um, phase right now. Also, the Treaty of Waitangi, um, the way in which Maori people actually drafted it, uh, non-Maori people misinterpreted what they had actually agreed to. So the agreement wasn't even... They weren't coming from the same place for the agreement. So. There's obviously, with any type of change, or there, there's always going to be issues and complexities. There's, nothing is ever perfect. Mm. And we've seen that with any change in history. But obviously, it's better to you know, try and get some sort of change in place than to not try at all, because we're worried that it's not going to be good enough. Um, but I think we have to be very 
cautious that, of course, these things are complicated, they're complex. We're seeing this right now when it comes to treaty um, making in Australia because we do have so many nations. So how do you negotiate a treaty when there are so many um, different people and groups with very different perspectives and issues and competing ideas? And so, um, you know, in Victoria currently they're negotiating... A, um, they're going through a treaty process. And because of our history, it's a very complex um, process because not only have you got the issue of, okay, well, um, if you're a Victorian who's from regional Victoria, but you live in Melbourne, what does that then mean in terms of you being represented? Are you represented based on where you live or based on the, where you come from, and then how are you represented in your place if you don't live in your home anymore? Mm. So, you know, it's, it's complicated and it, there's no sort of um, silver bullet answer to what actually is going to be the correct way, but I think that it's really heartening that there are processes now happening in Victoria, in the Northern Territory, Queensland has been discussing having a process as well. And in my personal opinion, I think having it on that sort of state and territory basis is probably um, smart <laughs> in because if you think of how complicated it is on that level, the complication on a national level is even more so. But I agree with you and I think that there needs to be a national framework though um, and there does need to be some type of agreement with the federal government mm. about how they are going to proceed moving forward in their relationship with Indigenous people. Mm. Because at the moment there is no mechanism in place to have Indigenous people on equal footing um, coming from an equal place of partnership um, to create mm. and co-design and make decisions based on uh, for issues that affect us. Mm. Um, and so that's where the whole voice conversation comes in. This is where the whole treaty conversation comes in. And I think that these are... Um, they're, they're not things that need to be dealt with in isolation. They're, you know, where we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and so I think that, you know, these are all just very important pieces of a puzzle that we need to work towards together uh, as a country. You have to be careful that, you, you know, with something like that, that Aboriginal people have a genuine voice mm. in this, um, that they're able to all have a say in it, not just um, that you get a, a small group together um, as a peak body or whatever, and that's the ticker box, mm. OK? We, we've, we've got a lot of that ticker box stuff, but we want genuine negotiations and talks. Um, and to be seen, see Aboriginal people as people in this country, mm. you know, First Nation people. Mm. So we would like to have that voice. And um, we've been slowly getting there, and you can see some changes, but we seem to take two steps forward and a, a couple, couple more back. Mm. So we need to have not the couple back, but to keep moving mm. forward. Mm. And it needs to yeah. be where we're actually um, selecting our spokesman, not that the federal government picks the people they want to hear from who tell the story that they want to hear. Yeah, yeah. we've come through the uh, generation of media elders, I believe, and we're looking... <laughs> Did I say that out loud? Yes. 
Oops. No, um, what, I, what, we're looking, what I'm looking to is progress that further and talk about, I, I, in my opinion, I think that we have one level of government too many in this country. Um, so whichever level you want to get rid of, I'd be happy to vote for. <laughs> as long as I've got the mate to take my garbage away, I'm happy. But in relation to that and the buck passing, especially in education, where the Commonwealth and the states can't even agree who's responsible for, edu for education mm. and a standard curriculum. You know, it was only 40 years ago that we got the same railway lines nationally. Treaty seems to be a process that um, scares the crows away. Are we, are we looking at a turtle approach where they're just starting to poke their heads out to look around and see that there are black people in Australia and you think treaty will make them snap back in in relation to is it too much too quickly mm. or are we going to look at, as we did for the um, yes vote, a 10, 12, 15 year process to educate the community such as the reconciliation million people walking on Harbour Bridge mm. to start those processes. Do we need to slow down and say hold your horses up just because you've got a state government that's interested in treaty, should we hang back so the other states can catch up or the people are comfortable? Mm. I think that mm. it's... I think the fact that the process is happening, it's sort of... I think it's going to be a steep learning curve and that I think, particularly in those states and territories that are currently doing it, I think that they need to not shy away from the fact that it's going to be a very difficult process and there's mm. going to be a lot of challenges, a lot of ups and downs, and it will probably feel too hard and they'll just want to give up. And, you know, there'll be... I think also for our own mob, we have a lot of conversations that we need to have with each other too because, you know, we're, we're all suffering from um, hurt and trauma and, you know, identity issues and other um, issues within our community. So throughout this treaty process, we need to kind of confront some, some of those issues with each other as well. So I think that it is a very... It'll be a very big learning curve, but I think that they're kind of like the guinea pigs, I guess. And I think that it's good for them to actually be going through this so that we can figure out, OK, um, what works about the process, what doesn't work, what are some things that we can do better? And I think that, you know, we've kind of been going through this conversation for a long time. We've kind of got to just take the risk and just go for it and then hope for the best. <laughs> and, you know, just... It, the, the treaty doesn't have to be signed tomorrow. I think it's a process and that we just work together to make sure that it's the best process that we can possibly have. But I think that we can't just kind of keep waiting around for decades and decades until Australia is ready because I don't think Australia will ever be ready. I think that they kind of have to, in a way, be forced into readiness um, because any kind of change is scary, but it, if change isn't hard, it's not worth doing it. Oh, that's good. I do, that was getting really interesting, but I've got the big cut. We've, you've, got, you've had all the easy questions now from me. We're going to um, open the, open the um, discussion up to questioners from the floor. Um, we're going to have some people with some mics running around. Right. If you can um, want to ask a question of the ladies, please do so. Um, 
And maybe possibly myself if you wanted to, but I don't know much. <laughs> it's clear you've got a, a, a very talented group of people here and congratulations on assembly. No, we're, we're happy for the men to have a voice. <laughs> <laughs> thank as you. As strong as we are. Yeah. Thank as you very much. I appreciate that. But thank you, ladies. You know, hopefully that we can continue this discussion further and we can get some questions from the floor now. So we'll open it up to the floor and we'll um, see how we go. I've got a question and it's um, in relation to music because it seems from, well, I'm, I'm, I, mean, I wouldn't call myself a Triple J listener all the time, but I often listen to it and I am struck um, and um, pleased by the number of uh, Indigenous artists that are now recognised right up there, um, you know, winning awards. Um, getting national recognition and their songs are protest music. It's mm. very powerful stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I'm just wondering what sort of role you see that in particular is playing in terms of educating young, all young Australians about, you know, the, the need to recognise the oppression of Aboriginal people mm. um, and what sort of impact it's having on, on young people in general today. Uh, I think I think music's always been used as a forum for protest for all generations and all people. Mm. It's not specific to Indigenous people, um, but I think that I can see that now that we're getting um, greater acknowledgement of those voices in a really wider spectrum, then that's really exciting to me. Mm. Uh, one of the things I did this year was for... Uh, International Year of Indigenous Languages was um, the first five minutes of my lectures for all the units that I was responsible for and for my team we had to provide um, some language or music in for all the students and we're talking about mainly non-Indigenous students and they were just amazed. <laughs> they were like, that really exists? Where do we get that from? And we were just able to show them such a wide spectrum of music that they were just unaware of, mm. and it was great. I think Triple J is probably the only <laughs> station that plays Indigenous music. I mean, in terms, I can't think of other mainstream. Oh, maybe we'd play Jessica Malvoy, but um, <laughs> like the, you know, they're not playing, you know, your Baker Boy or your Briggs or yes. you know other you know, artists that are having these protest songs. Mm. But I think it's good because you're seeing that music really infiltrate into that younger generation and people listening to it because they like the music and it's got a good message. Um, and it's just because they're an Australian artist and they want to support that artist. So I think that... I'm hoping that that sort of just continues and it's not just sort of a moment in time at the moment. But, um, yeah, I think that we have so many talented musicians out there that hopefully it will just continue on through generations because they have a really important voice. Does that mean I have to stop listening to Fox? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, any, any other questions? Surely there's some questions out there. Don't be frightened. Because yeah. we're willing to answer anything. <laughs> if we can. The only silly question is an unasked one. Yeah, yeah, that's right. All right, well, here we go. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts on the role of allies in speaking up and speaking up for change. Mm. And where do you draw the line between someone helping um, and, and just hijacking the message? I think if, if 
non-Aboriginal people hadn't, uh, where we had the, what was it, 99% of Australia? 97. 97% of Australia vote for us to be recognised. Um, in 67. In 67. So, I mean, that showed that, that there was a big part of Australia that was willing to support Aboriginal people and see them as human beings. Mm. Before that, we was flora and fauna. Mm. So, you know, we could be killed on site or and massacred and stuff like that when we was flora and fauna. So up to 67, when we were recognised as people, human beings in our own country. Um, so to have 97% of Australians mm. say, oh, yeah, they're human beings, mm. we should recognise that. That was a big thing. So you can't do nothing without everybody pulling mm. together to do stuff. We could go away and try to do stuff by yourself, but it wouldn't work. It yeah. wouldn't benefit anybody, mm. just ourselves. Mm. And then it depends who's going to listen to us. Yeah, yeah. And I think mm. that... We're only 3% of the population, so we obviously do need other Australians to be allies um, in the struggles and the issues that we face. Uh, I think, um, you know, for instance, I worked on the marriage equality campaign, um, and I said to all of the people working on the marriage equality campaign that now it's their turn to return, like their time to return the favour yeah. and that they all need to actually support Indigenous issues and campaign for us. Um, so I think that, you know, when it comes to being an ally, um, it really is sometimes about taking a back seat and um, ensuring that Indigenous people are being heard and having their voices elevated. Um, but it is also about non-Indigenous people ensuring that their voices are getting heard in the spaces that we either will not be listened to or that we're not being heard. So it is really important for non-Indigenous people to call out racism, to call out um, prejudice and, and to talk to their peers about Indigenous issues because you know, sometimes that's who they're going to listen to. They're not going to listen to me or any of this mob. So, mm. you know, th there is a really important role for you to play in there. Um, but also it's about what can... If I'm an ally, what can I do to empower Indigenous people? Not to hijack the space, but to empower Indigenous people. Um, and I actually wrote a, a list recently that was published by Triple J. <laughs> Um, and it was about 10 ways to positively engage with Indigenous people and issues. And so you can Google that if you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it is really about um, supporting Indigenous organisations, you know, encouraging your workplaces to use Indigenous businesses for anything. That can be, you know, for catering, for graphic design, for, what you know... At, our mob have businesses in, mm. in everything that you could possibly think of. So things like that, um, there, there's lots of ways in which you can engage with Indigenous people and issues um, and to do it in a way that's respectful and, as you said, not hijacking. Mm. And I think that we can tell when somebody's genuine. And I would rather see somebody make a genuine mistake mm. than to, to then genuinely not even attempt. Yeah to be supportive or listen. Um, and that's the difference. 
Yeah. So most of the people I in, in the university, most of the people I work with is, are non-Indigenous students, and it's the same question they say to me. But you know, do I have the right to do something? Should I just step back? And I said, well, if you step back, then we're not able to move forward mm -hmm. because I need you to help educate the wider community. Yeah. So I'm educating you so you can get out there and have a genuine voice. So that's about you educating yeah. yourself so that you know what you're doing and you don't take over. Mm. We have run out of time for questions tonight. Oh, so there's one, one last right up the back. one. one Sorry, more. you were, you were too far away. One more. Okay. <coughs> thanks, thanks for the recognition down there. <coughs> but uh, what I'd like to raise is that uh, we're talking about treaty. Now, what's it going to be based on? Is it going to be based on mm. sovereignty, Aboriginal sovereignty? And we're going to be talking from two equals, or do we continue the absurdity, 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 you know, this, this absurdity that we've been through for 200 years now? Mm. You know, because you know, if you, you know, if we can quote Voltaire, you know, who's a French French philosopher, you know, you have people believe in absurdities, they'll commit atrocities, and that's been proven many, 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 many times over and over in this country. Mm. So, mm. so what? So, so how do we get these people to? to know that they're morally obligated mm. yeah. to, uh, to correct this uh, trespass mm -hmm. upon Aboriginal people. And that's, a, I think, where, uh, particularly on a federal level as well, where it's going to be really tricky because with a treaty, it is about one sovereign group recognising another so sovereign group. And as you were saying, because this country is built on terra nullius, about there being no one here, then what does that mean? Because we're not recognised as a sovereign group. So how are we going to negotiate this treaty if we're not even recognised as our own people no, to begin no. with? So I, I agree with what you're saying. It's going to be a really tricky process. And I don't know where they're coming at in terms of sovereignty in the um, state and territory processes. I don't know what the conversation is around sovereignty. Um, but also, I think you're right. It, it, that, that's the point. For, for a treaty, you've got to ensure that it's you're coming from equal positions and that it is a treaty which means that you're two equal parties that are m having a negotiation. So we don't want it to turn into a situation where it's basically just the government saying, oh, let's just do this to shut them up, basically. Mm. Mm. So and it's their agenda, not yeah. ours. Yeah, and, and it's not... Um, they're there, we know what's best for you. Yeah. Mm. OK, we need a genuine voice. We don't need that they're there, we know what's best for you because we know what's best for ourselves. Mm. Yeah. So I think it will actually have to be a, a very... Um, there'll have to be sort of a, a break away from the way that we've been doing things for a really long time because the way that um, the government has sort of been built and operated on is this whole concept of we know what's best for you, we know yeah. the way that, you know, this is how we will fix things for yeah. you and there needs to be a complete change of perception in, yeah. how, in, in actually just completely pulling yeah. apart that mindset. Yeah. And that will be extremely difficult yeah. to... And need, the need to get away from that mission manager mentality of we know what's best from you. 
the political parties need to realise that they're still in that mission manager mentality mm. Mm. towards so us and not giving us a genuine voice. We so need that genuine voice. The government is if it, if the federal government is to negotiate a treaty on a national level, they're going to actually have to accept and give up the fact that they will have to give things up. When you're having a treaty, it's not about just one side negotiating and having to give something up. They're going to have to give something up too. And they're going to have to negotiate. And they're probably... It's going to be things that they're not happy with or they don't want to do. But that's what a negotiation is. And so I think we're very used to giving things up. We're very used to having to negotiate and compromise on things. So I think from their perspective, it's going to be very difficult to navigate uh, how, how will we do this in a genuine um, way? I, I was just going to say that um, tonight we've heard about um, that if change isn't difficult, it's not worth doing, mm. and that the temptation might be to give up and that you can't. And as we draw the evening to a close, I just wanted to say that um, when we go upstairs, and I hope you'll join us for refreshments, we also really hope that you'll go into the Treasures Gallery because there will, you will see um, something from a man who didn't give up, and that is, of course, um, Edward Corky Marbo's papers, and in particular on display at the moment are his speaking notes for the speech that would begin the Marbo land rights case. Uh, we always ha have some of Mr Marbo's papers on display in the Treasures Gallery for that reason. You might also like to see the We Have Survived series of posters created in response to the Bicentennial um, by the Boomerley Aboriginal Artists Cooperative. So um, I think you've inspired us um, to find ways that we can help and not hinder, to step mm. forward instead of not stepping back. Um, and, uh, and really to kind of see how amazingly vibrant is the world of media that can push forward um, these messages. So, um, guests, I'm sure that you would like to join me in thanking Michael for facilitating. And, and thanking our speakers tonight. So, Auntie Diane, Lynette, Shannon and Elizabeth. So, thank you. and have some refreshments with us. So.